This podcast is brought to you by C-Power. C-Power has been helping organizations, perhaps organizations like yours, chart a path to the energy future since the first open energy markets in the U.S. were created back at the turn of the 21st century. They've got energy experts who will work with your organization to help build a bridge to that future, the distributed energy future, a bridge that spans the grid of the past, crosses the transformations of the present, and leads to a future that's not yet set. It sure is exciting, though. Visit the C-Power Way. That's C-P-O-W-E-R. TheCPowerWay.com slash future. We've got a link there in the show notes to learn about how C-Power can guide you to the energy future. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome. This week, what to do with all this money moving around. The richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, says he's going to channel $10 billion of his own money into climate solutions. Is this the biggest climate philanthropy ever? It appears so. And what made Bezos finally pivot from his space travel obsession into focusing on our own planet? Then, the mushy middle. Uh, We talked earlier about Generate Capital, Jigger's firm that he co-founded, which raised another billion dollars to fund climate tech that is a little less attractive to some investors. That includes fuel cells, microgrids, and unconventional solar projects. So we're going to shift our focus to the underserved opportunities in finance. And then to the government, a new pot of money from ARPA-E is available to scale up existing technologies. It's paltry compared to the money people like Gates and Bezos are throwing into the space. So what role is the government playing to scale climate tech? Jigger Shah and Catherine Hamilton are my co-hosts. Catherine's there in Washington, D.C. Hello, Catherine. Hi, I'm getting ready for Super Tuesday here in Virginia. If the polls are still open, if they're allowing us to gather publicly by tomorrow because of coronavirus. Yeah, no kidding. That's a joke. But in all seriousness, uh, Sarah Week, which is like one of the biggest energy conferences in the world, was just canceled yesterday. And I suspect we're going to see a lot more disruptions, both uh, in conferences and gatherings and in supply chains across the energy industry. Jigger Shah is with us. As always, Jigger is the co-founder of Generate Capital, and he is... Where are you? <laughs> I'm in D.C. this week, but uh, yeah, it's crazy. International travel just isn't possible anymore because of all the quarantines. Well, we'll see how quickly that changes here in the U.S. Interestingly, I saw that Amazon halted almost all non-essential travel the other day, and that brings us into Amazon's chief executive... Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, uh, he said on Instagram recently that he is going to put $10 billion into climate solutions. $10 billion. Um, There are ways that this money is small, you know, compared to what's necessary to mitigate climate change. It's small compared to the infrastructure we need to build out. It's small. Um, But there are ways that this amount of money is very large. It could double the amount of private dollars available for climate work. The Atlantic reported that it is eight times more than the next largest climate philanthropist, the Hewlett Foundation. And just like with BP's announcement we talked about on an earlier episode, there's no details yet. So we're still kind of waiting to figure out 
how Bezos is going to spend this money. Um, the only thing we know is that the money is going to scientists, activists, NGOs, any effort that offers a real possibility to preserve and protect the natural world. So I think we're still trying to figure that out. Uh, Jigger, to the best of your ability, can you describe what Bezos is trying to do here? Well, he talks about not investing directly into companies. And so my sense is this is a philanthropic effort, just like the Gates Foundation, right? So I think we should start with the fact that he's basically doing this um, to create the Bezos Foundation. Um, and, And that, I think, then restricts what he can invest in. So you've got a couple of areas, right? You've got the grant making part of the business, which is usually 5% of the money every year, which in this case could be $500 million a year. And then you separately have uh, the endowment and how it gets invested. And we generally don't focus on how endowments get invested. We generally only focus on the grant making piece of it. So like, I'm still not completely clear as to whether the 10 billion is going out the door or whether it's a foundation where 5% has to go out the door. Wait, Jigger, I thought it was his personal money, not foundation money. There's no such thing. What? Right? I mean, when you're <laughs> that wealthy as Bezos is, this stuff is all structured money, right? So basically, you donate stock directly into the Earth Fund. The Earth Fund then liquidates it. Then there's no taxes that have to be paid. Bezos gets a tax deduction for donating the stock. And separately, the Earth Fund doesn't have to pay taxes when it liquidates the stock on capital gains, right? So this is. I mean, how the philanthropic world works is, you know, largely whether it's Gates or Warren Buffett to save taxes. I don't think it's a bad thing, by the way. I just think that, you know, it's it's going to be a foundation. Otherwise, if it was personal money, he really could do whatever he wants. But when you look at the reporting, he can't do things that would make him money, which is what the foundation restricts you on. When this announcement was made on Instagram, it raised a lot of questions because there were very few details tied to it. And also because there are not that many foundations doing work at a grand scale that could take the amount of money that Bezos could theoretically throw at them. So I guess the question is, where could this money go and what kind of priorities would it fund? And is the movement prepared to take this much take this much money? Uh, Catherine, I guess the question is, who could he fund? Yeah, so he says he wants to fund scientists, activists, and NGOs. So if you look at what other big philanthropists have done, like Bloomberg and Steyer, they've funded issue campaigns. So they've they've used their philanthropy dollars through their foundations to fund campaigns for a variety of clean energy issues, like the Beyond Coal campaign from Bloomberg. Um, A whole group of them, including Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos, too, formed the Breakthrough Energy Venture, which is, you know, a big pile of money for very patient capital investment in long term technology. So there are a bunch of different things he could do. I have some ideas about what I think he should do. Let's hear them. (laughs) Okay. They fall into kind of three buckets for me. One is, what do you do best? He does logistics really well. And if he wants to go to a full electric fleet, he should invest in charging stations everywhere. We're going to need charging stations. And he could make them so that they provide services. They could have Amazon lockers. They could have ads like those Volta charging stations do. But I think that would be one piece he could really invest in that would be good. I don't know if he can because that would be a commercial venture. Um, The second bucket would be 
what is the saying? Don't just hand out fish, but teach people how to fish. So I think he should also invest in trade schools, cooperative extension programs, um, things like CLI, the Clean Energy Leadership Institute, you know, teach people how to be workers and missionaries and leaders in this industry. And then the third bucket I think of is not just teaching people how to fish, but giving them a fishing rod. And I think of that as something like the National Climate Bank uh, that would fund state efforts on green banks that would be that would be a nonprofit and would be able to kind of de-risk, allow investment in regional kind of gnarly projects like transmission or offshore wind, but also um, allow much more de-risking of what what isn't a risk, but what a lot of private sector uh, capital thinks is risk, which is low income communities and, you know, aggregated energy efficiency projects. So I think uh, of these three buckets, I don't know if you'll be able to do those, but those are what I would like to see a lot of money go into. Yeah, those are a lot of great ideas, Catherine. I think that that there are some other areas I would look at too. So for instance, I think local journalism is being decimated around the country. I think funding local journalism would be interesting because I think that to get the kind of climate movement that we want, this has to become deeply personal to people. And I do think that it is personal. I think there's a lot of climate impacts occurring in people's backyards, but you're only really hearing about Australian fires or California fires. You're not really hearing about the micro changes that are affecting commerce and people's ways of life locally. So I think you could definitely put a lot of money to work that way. The other thing I would say is that um, in general, the way this foundation money works is that you can also do below market loans or investments. So investments that are basically deemed Um, like definitely not going to make a lot of money or commercial rates of return. So for instance, the Prime Coalition and some of the stuff that folks have done there, where you're investing in early stage technologies, knowing full well that you're not going to get a commercial rate of return is something you could do with this money. Um, And then like Catherine said, a lot of areas in frontline communities or other places where you might offer 0% interest financing is also qualified use of that money. The other reaction I've seen to Bezos's announcement is he should just dump it all into politics. Uh, so there's definitely some frustration over Tom Steyer and Michael Bloomberg running their presidential campaigns because they have been very effective in dumping a lot of their money into local races, into environmental groups that have, uh, you know, truly helped change uh, the energy sector and battle coal plants and um, be involved in you know local utility commission elections and so forth. And uh, Bezos could do the same thing here. I mean, he could be the equivalent of the Koch brothers single-handedly uh, for the pro-climate action movement. And, you know, you think about the, these three billionaires who uh, could basically, like, completely change the political environment at a local and national level with their money, some of the reactions I've seen are, forget the foundation money, just dump it into politics. What do y'all think about that? Well, it does make sense to do things that are local. Um, You know, NRECA, the Rural Electric Co-op Association, did a podcast on January 10th where they mocked the fact that, you know, no one ever pays attention to their races for the local co-op boards, and that allows them to continue to keep coal operating. And that's just weird. 
Like, why would the Rural Co-op Association talk about the fact that no one can test their elections locally, and that's why they're able to keep coal plants open? So you can imagine people actually funding local races that probably cost like 3000 bucks um, to put up, you know, folks who are far more competent on rural co-op boards. Yeah, I think that is a good idea. I really like, though, making sure that it's also about issues so that you're you're actually spurring people to make voting decisions based on issues that directly impact them. And that this gets to Jigger's local journalism, that you're not just putting a bunch of money into a campaign, but you're making what those people stand for be really important to voters. Robinson Meyer of The Atlantic wrote a great piece on the announcement, pointing out that Bezos has no theory of change so to speak. Uh, Even in the corporate environment, Amazon was very late to the game in developing a climate plan. It just adheres to the Paris climate commitments, which are important, but, you know, bare bones. Uh, It was after pressure from employees. And then on the philanthropy front, we don't have many details. And so Bezos himself hasn't really outlined a theory of change like he has in space travel. I mean, that's been his pet project for, uh, you know, well over a decade. I I can't even remember when he started that project. But um, he's very clear in his vision for humans being a multi-planetary species, but he hasn't really established a theory of change on climate change yet, or what, he, what he's going to do. Yeah, you know, the funny thing is, Stephen, like in preparation for this episode, I reached out to all my friends at Hewlett and Packard and the Environmental Grantmakers Association. Not a single person could tell me who the main advisor is that Jeff is using for figuring out what to do with $10 billion. So my sense is that he announced this deal mainly because he was inspired to do so. Maybe it's because workers um, at his, uh, you know, at his company are like protesting. I mean, Bill Weil, formerly head of sustainability for Facebook, is organizing a lot of these workers actually now um, and helping them to find their climate voice. And so a little bit of like this feels to me like just a way of announcing something big. I think he fully intends to do it. But I I honestly don't even know a single advisor that's helping him on this. And I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that are willing to help him figure out how to part with that $10 billion. Yeah, that's an interesting point, Catherine. Actually, there are a lot of competing groups. And I guess there's going to be a lot of people itching for that money. And the question is, can they can they handle that amount of money? And is there going to be a lot of infighting over that money? Yeah, there always is. It's uh, trying to raise funding for projects is so, or not just for projects, but for campaigns and real efforts from foundations is so hard to do. Uh, There is so much work to be done. I would like to think it's not a zero sum game. There's plenty of work to go around. And the issue is he needs to find somebody who can really help him think through it as to where the greatest impact will be that will fill in some of the gaps in where funding is already going. Jigger, can the foundations and the folks who are deploying this money handle it? Oh, they can easily handle it. I think that when you think about where we are with climate change, you're talking about places like Key West where they're routinely underwater for three months of the year now. They've got six inches of standing water three months of the year. And so you're talking about mass migration impacting the United States starting next week. And, you know, there isn't really a lot of resource for that because the Trump administration isn't bothering to figure it out. So I think philanthropies are going to have to fill in the gap. So when you look at just the devastation in frontline communities and in, you know, some of our coastal communities and other places, 
I feel like $10 billion probably won't even go that far. Well, I'm hopeful that he will find some good things to fund. There's plenty out there and that he'll put that $10 billion to work. Well, my sense is that there will be a lot of uh, willing folks ready and able to put that money to work. And it's easy to pile on to the billionaires these days, but certainly a, a movement shifting move from Jeff Bezos. We are going to take a very brief pause to talk about our supporter of the show, Power. Now, many of you run organizations, and when it comes to making decisions about your organization's energy use and energy spend, you don't have a crystal ball. It can be hard. Is now the right time to invest in distributed generation? Uh, how do you go about using it to earn revenue in your region's energy market? Energy markets are varied and very complicated. Is your organization maximizing demand response earnings? Well, Power is here to help. Power has been helping organizations like yours chart a path to the energy future for decades. Their energy experts will work with your organization to help build a unique bridge to the energy future. That includes distributed generation, demand response, and new ways of tracking your energy spend. Visit thecpowerway.com slash future to learn about how CPower can guide you across the bridge to the energy future. So we're following the money this week. Let's turn from philanthropy to project finance. What are the best ways to spend money today? So if Bezos is playing climate kingmaker, then the jousting and the hand-to-hand combat is done at the project or the technology level. You know, it used to be that people looked to venture capital for this kind of scaling, but increasingly it's not venture dollars, although they are still very important. It's often project finance. Um, and of course, the government as well, which we will talk about. So, Jigger, you know, you say that everything gets lumped together and labeled VC, which is wrong, and that there's this kind of middle market for climate finance that people rarely understand. We talked earlier about this billion dollars that generate capital raised to support this mushy middle. What is it, and why is it underserved by VCs? Uh, or by large corporates, for that matter? No, it's a great question, you know, and I, I like to speculate around venture capital like the best of them, right? The whole clean tech to climate tech movement and all the other pieces. But I think at the end of the day, the most people acknowledge that the reason why solar and wind are so cheap right now is because they're able to access remarkably cheap financing, And whether it's the bond market or whether it's tax equity or whether it's sponsor equity, I feel like the level of of discussion that occurs in the venture capital space is far higher than actually understanding how two to three hundred billion dollars a year gets put to work every year around project finance. And it's one of those things where when we talk about how to solve climate change, we need to move that number to a trillion dollars a year in the U.S. and four or five trillion dollars a year globally. I just don't think people understand exactly what it takes to attract that kind of money and you know how the government and then state governments and other utilities, et cetera, can help fix the ecosystem. What is the mushy middle? When we're talking about technologies themselves, what are you thinking about? What's the stuff that gets that gets uh, underlooked. Well, so for instance, I think that we continue to re- like remain fixated on tech and innovation when 
in fact, things like, for instance, anaerobic digesters or fuel cells are really about who's taking what risks, right? So like when you look at Bloom, for instance, right? Uh, Bloom is a large publicly traded company. And people say, well, why can't they get cheaper project financing? Well, the answer is that you're really worried if Bloom is going to be around for the next 20 years, right? What happens if you buy a fuel cell and you need to get a replacement fuel cell every three to five years and Bloom goes out of business? Who actually picks up the pieces? Who buys their new manufacturing facility? Who then supplies you with spare parts? How does that supply chain work? And no one ever asks that question at the IPO. They're just like, hey, you know, Bloom's public. It's worth over a billion dollars. It's amazing. But when you think about exactly how long 20 years is or 30 years is and how long someone is going to have to maintain that infrastructure, I just think that that is a whole different set of questions than people are currently asking around which company is hot this week. And it seems like it's outside of what utilities are able to do. Um, Utilities have sort of one mode. And if you can bring them those projects in aggregation, it seems like you're filling a gap that exists now that others aren't able to do unless you can do project finance. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think when you think about like microgrids after the public safety shutoffs, right? So there's a lot of grocery stores and and uh, shopping malls and others who want to make sure that they can ride through four and a half days of power outages. And they're thinking about what to buy and what to put in. You can imagine that cogeneration with diesel generators or natural gas generators are actually an easier supply chain to finance today than fuel cells or solar plus storage, given that battery storage technology is, hasn't really been tested for 20 years of uh, utilization in a microgrid, right? And so then when people ask tough questions and say, hey, you know, like, what should the interest rate be on a solar plus storage deal? And it turns out to be 12 or 15% because you're worried that 20% of the projects might go belly up, then people get freaked out or they get, you know, offended, And they say, oh, we need more government subsidies to solve that problem. But I think that there's actually a set of ways in which the government can say, we should provide a loan guarantee for some of these technologies, right? But as you know, Catherine, many, many of those loan guarantee programs are impossible to navigate in the, even in the best of times. And then under the Trump administration, it's actually going nowhere. Those loan guarantee programs, Jigger, you're exactly right. Those are really designed for large projects, but also just to get in the door and do an application cost can cost $100,000. So you're missing all of these smaller projects, whether it's for low-income communities or whether it's just you know projects that pencil out with no problem, like energy efficiency, but can't be monetized through a program like a loan guarantee program, or that a big bank isn't gonna isn't gonna fund. Maybe you can aggregate those uh, with project finance. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's basically the nuances of this. I would say are lost on most entrepreneurs because they're just so passionate about their solution and their technology or their new approach to the market. And they've gotten a bunch of venture capital. And so they're super excited. And when their customer says, I love that technology, but I don't want to pay cash for it. I really just want to buy the services from it, whether it's a new battery chemistry or whether it's, you know, the new solar thermal that Heliogen's doing or, you know, even grid storage, right? There's a lot of compressed air storage technologies or the things that people are pushing. Then folks say, well, you know, like we don't actually know how to do that. And then their natural 
next step is to raise more venture capital. But venture capital is at 35% imputed interest rates, right? And so you're you're investing in deploying technology at a customer site at 35% interest because you you just don't know how to navigate project finance. And then when you do try to get into project finance, people like Generate Capital asks you 125 questions. <laughs> like, what is the chemistry? What's your O&M plan? How do you think about you know long-term longevity here? Are you willing to spin out a service group and make it bankruptcy remote? You know what happens uh, in terms of real-time data? Is that being collected? There's all these nuances that banks care about because they have to make sure they get paid back over 20 years that venture capitalists don't really have expertise in. Yeah, Jigger, I actually have a question for you on that, which is around accelerators and incubators. And, you know, it seems like those are the steps before you come in. So a lot of those folks, like the one in Hawaii, the accelerator, is look, they're looking at, all right, who are your customers? How can we really deploy projects so that you understand what that customer relationship is, you know, how, and I, Pat Sapensley and I talked about this too, where she said, we want to know, you know, how did you deal with your customer? Were you able to resolve any issues that came up before they're even willing to look at funding someone and helping them get to the stage where you're going to want to fund them? And I, I sense that those folks really need they need to prove it out, not only to their customers, but also to make sure, and, and I've been helping some of these accelerators in this too, and some of their portfolio companies on what are the policy issues that they may or may not be thinking about that are going to have a great impact on their business model. Well, I mean, that's certainly true. But I would say that, I mean, just to be more controversial about it, I'd say that probably one out of 500 companies that have gone through incubators are eligible for our financing. Right. I mean, they're so early that they're probably 10 years away from what we do. Like, for instance, I would say just like the most banal stuff is what we do. Like, for instance, Uber and Lyft are currently, um, you know, under threat of being regulated by cities to convert to electric vehicles because they have much uh, higher emissions footprints than, you know, normal cars. And what they're finding is, is that no bank actually even knows how to work with them to deploy an electric vehicle fleet because Uber and Lyft don't make money. And the middle men in the middle, like Hertz or Avis or others, are not actually used to managing EV fleets. The utilities want nothing to do with it. And so they actually physically can't finance vehicles, electric vehicles. They need to pay cash for all their electric vehicles. Like you wouldn't think that that was a problem. But like those are really basic problems. And so then when a company in an incubator says, well, we've got a better way of managing electric vehicle fleet or whatever else, I'm like, that's great. But Uber and Lyft can't even get electric vehicles financed right now. I think this brings us to the third story that we wanted to talk about, which is this new funding from ARPA-E, which is the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Energy. Um, and a, a very important program for supporting early scale technologies. And now they're taking this new funding to provide support for companies and inventors who have gotten previous support and are ready to scale out of the lab. And um, I think this feeds into a bigger conversation about how long it takes for these companies to scale, how effective government funding is, and how you kind of 
push from lab into the mushy middle and into a place where banks and financial institutions want to support them. Um, so, so Catherine, can you just talk about what this new ARPA-E funding is? Sure. So just a quick reminder on who ARPA-E is. Remember, it was it was patterned after the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, which was started in 1958 by Eisenhower in response to the Soviet launch of Sputnik. And, you know, what DARPA did was try to solve gnarly problems, and ARPA-E does the same thing. I was able to talk to James Zoller, who's the Associate Director of Technology to Market, and Pat McGrath, who's the Deputy Director of Technology, both at ARPA-E. And what they said is, like, what arpa brings is this special sauce, completely modeled after DARPA, that really brings in technology leaders with a lot of freedom to explore solutions and a limited term to do it. So these folks who work at ARPA-E have three-year terms. Sometimes they'll have re-upped their averages four and a half to five years, but what it does is it prevents people from building empires and just becoming fun, you know, funders. They actually become part of the solution. And so what they're looking at is how do we really come up with new solutions Solutions, frame problems differently and come up with really new approaches and and look for folks who are out there trying to do that and really are disruptive. But what they have found is in these 800 projects that they have funded, that they really have another valley of death. And there are many valleys of death, as Jerry can attest to, he, he helps on one end of the valley of death. And this is a very the other end. And so scale up is about how do you take some of those projects from bench scale to product? It requires cost sharing, so they have to bring in partners at 50-50 cost share. They've had over 100 applications for this program, and I think they're going to end up with about 20 semifinalists. They're going to have, on May 20th, their pitch day at Stanford, and they're looking at how do we now take these really interesting solutions, debug them, make sure that we can integrate, scale, make them more reliable, and get them to their next phase of deployment and investment. And Jigger, what happens next? If these companies get this money, like where do they go? Does that get them closer to the the bankability and the structural support that they need that you were just talking about? It does, but I mean it's it's a really great analogy here, right? The thing that makes DARPA work is that their customer is the Department of Defense. And so when a technology gets out of the lab and the Defense Department says, that's really cool and it's going to keep our people safe, they pay whatever it costs to put it in. And if two years later that technology doesn't work in the field or doesn't like keep up with testing protocols or whatever it is that makes it fail, they just write off the investment and they move on to the next thing. Right With ARPA-E, one of the big challenges is that the government is not the natural first customer, although it probably could be, since it's a large user of energy. And what you really need to do is to have an industry player say, yeah, I'll put that in my facility, and we'll get a grant from ARPA-E to be able to defray some of the costs of that deployment so that if something were to go bust, then you know we're not really taking too much on the chin. Um, but you could imagine that the the industry player can't be as strategic as the federal government can be, because the industry player is always saying, even if I have to cost share 25%, if that money goes in and two years later, the technology doesn't work as advertised, which is entirely possible, because sometimes these technologies are being deployed for the first time at full scale, then you know, that industry player lost their 25% cost share. And so I think that we need to completely rethink 
what the pathway is for this innovation to get into the mainstream because the timescales we're talking about now are probably 10 years of early stage development when ARPA-E gets their hands on a technology and funds it, and then another 10 years for commercialization, and then a third 10 years for scale-up. So when you look at solar and wind, or you look at lithium-ion batteries, that's been the trajectory, is a 30-year scale-up approach. Then there's this other question about whether this money is sufficient to begin with. So $50 million for uh, you know, a range of companies that may be at a very early stage is significant money. But let's compare that money to Jeff Bezos, uh, tens of billions of dollars versus tens of millions of dollars from the government to supposedly scale up the next iteration of energy tech. That makes this money feel really, really small and paltry. Well, it's a start, right? I mean, it's not unlike the conversation we had around, uh, you know, the World Bank funding for microgrids in Africa, right, with $350 million. So these are small dollars, and it's a start. But but I think that there's something structurally that we need to actually work on fixing. And I think it's it, it goes to the sort of, you know, fairy tale thought process that people have where you start with sort of basic R&D, and then you go to venture capital, and then you go to you know, Series A, Series B, Series C, and then, you know, suddenly Generate Capital comes in and then you're at mainstream. And in general, I would say that that step between Series C and where Generate Capital comes in can be 20 years. A lot of the stuff that we're funding are things that were fully commercialized in the 90s and they were just forgotten, right? I mean, look at geothermal technology where you've gotten new contracts signed, you know, by the state of California and Utah recently And most of the supply chains for geothermal are gone, right? And so you can't get super cheap capital for those projects. And you start to look at some of these, uh, you know, gigaton scale solutions that we're all studying right now. And most of the stuff that we're looking at, like plastics recycling, for instance, a lot of that stuff was, you know, perfected 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, there's so many places for failure along the line. And, you know, the hope is that you can leapfrog uh, on some level. Certainly a tiny percentage of those that are funded are able to do that. Um, but that's certainly one of the hopes. And and I would say that programs like DARPA and ARPA-E are very popular. So even though uh, the White House budget always says that they should, that ARPA-E should be zeroed out, Congress does not agree. So they keep this program going. And I think, Stephen, you'll see just as the main ARPA-E budget increases, that the scale-up funding will also increase. Well, let let me ask you the same question I asked about Bezos, Catherine, which is, if we 10x this money going into ARPA-E programs, um, would we get 10x the results? Like, would, would there be enough companies and interest to spend that money wisely? Well, ARPA-E has funded about 800 projects, and certainly not all of those are successful. So you need to pull from those projects. And they said they had over 100 applications for the scale-up. So, you know, not all of those are going to be great investments for the next phase, but certainly they would be able to fund more than they're able to now if they had more money to do so. So I think this has been a really interesting discussion about how to spend money. And it feels to me like the very tired and very exhausting debate about innovation versus deployment is starting to get more nuanced. Um, 
Jigger, what do you think? I mean, you've been focused on sort of deployment, deployment, deployment for a long time, and you just showed that there's this sort of 30 years of performance and provability that needs to happen before a company like yours will touch it. So you're very firmly in the deployment camp in terms of where you're spending your dollars, but you obviously see the need for um, you know, b- both uh, R&D dollars and a focus on, on deployment. But do you sense that the debate within energy circles is getting any more nuanced? Well, I think with the large dollars that are coming in, it's becoming pretty clear that what I've been proposing is what everyone else is thinking as well, right? That ultimately, that R&D is so critical and it's something we should continue to invest in and we should triple the budget for it. But that pretty much nothing we invest in now will have a gigaton scale impact in 2050, right? That when you look at what the oil companies are focused on and what the strategics are focused on, what we're focused on, these are all technologies that are already there, right? That they're already in production. They're already being utilized. They're just at a 5, 10, 50, $100 million scale. And folks are really scaling them up. And I, I think that when you think about John Kerry and all those people in the World War Zero analogy, if the federal government will actually, you know, when it finally says climate change is a crisis and will scale things up, will look for things that are already there and figure out how to make them 10x bigger or 100x bigger, as opposed to saying, yes, there will be a Manhattan Project and that is required, but the vast majority of it is just building more you know, like to the World War II analogy, more planes, more tanks, more stuff, right? Just actually deploying a lot of the existing solutions faster. And Catherine, what does this mean for the policy and politics? We are currently seeing a bunch of um, energy priorities come together into a single bill right now in Congress. We're going to talk about that in a future episode. But the underlying priorities, do you get a sense that it's still split across party lines that like we just need money in R&D and we'll be OK or we just need money for tax credits and we'll be OK? Or are there nuances that have emerged or that have already been there? I think there are a bunch of things that people agree on and then people go into their own camps of, you know, the innovation trigger word, which means CCS and nuclear um, or, you know, there there are different things that people tend to like based on their understanding of the concept. So I think some of what we're seeing is a bunch of stuff that people can agree on that we need to continue doing. And that's really important. So like, let's not take our eye off of those balls. But um, hopefully we'll be able to start seeing some more creative and transformative solutions uh, coming forward. Okay, on to our free electrons. Uh, Jigger, when you are in the voting booth, you're, you're covering up your pen, you're checking off the boxes on Super Tuesday. Um, what, what are you babbling over the booth to the person next to you about? Well, I have a lot to babble about. Uh, so, you know, Jenny Chase uh, over at uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance um, had this great stat where global solar capacity just surpassed uh, global wind capacity uh, this year. And so, like, you know, not that we want this to be solar versus wind, but it just shows you how fast solar has grown over the last few years. Second, uh, wind power is now the most uh, uh, volume of renewable energy we have in the United States. It just surpassed hydro this year. Uh, which is, you know, big news. And then the third is um, 
my uh, prediction in 2004 that I spent $100 on at the Long Bets Foundation that 75% of all incremental new electricity was going to come from renewable energy was just validated by EIA this week. And so uh, EIA is now projecting 76% of all new capacity in the United States will come from renewable energy uh, this year. So how does that influence the person next to you in the voting booth then? They're, they're, they're more, more than ever believing that deployment, deployment, deployment is the answer. <laughs> Catherine, when you are marching to the polls in Virginia and you're walking by all the people with signs uh, and you stop to chat with them, what are you going to chat them up about? I'm going to go in a very non-wonky direction with my free electron, which is sort of a public service announcement, which is that for folks who listen, and we love you all, you've been amazing. Uh, You hear us every week or so. And what you hear is that you have three people who are really strong colleagues. And now Ingrid is our fourth member of the family, which is wonderful. But we're also really good friends. And in that vein, we make each other better every single week. We bring we make ourselves bring not only the best of ourselves, but we kind of raise each other up. And I feel like we do that every single week to the best of our ability. We all try to come to the table and leave it all on the field. It doesn't mean we win every game. (laughs) I would just say we don't always get it right. And we really appreciate people who listen and comment and provide us feedback and help us see other perspectives because you know, the three of us may not always present all of the right perspectives or understand the full context. Um, But I just want everybody out there to know that what you hear are three people who really care about this industry and care about bringing the best every week to the Energy Gang. And thank you all for being members of the Energy Gang. Nicely said, Catherine. That's really sweet. Yeah. Well, um, my free electron is about the community we have with this show as well. And those of you who may follow me on Twitter saw that uh, just over a week ago, my brother died suddenly, uh, who I had a very close relationship with, um, but also a tumultuous relationship. Um, You know, he suffered over the course of his life with very serious mental health issues and very serious addiction issues and he struggled every day to get over those issues and and Catherine and Jigger were privy to many of the you know ups and downs that we faced as a family but over the last year uh, he genuinely was making some really leaps in improvements in uh, mental health and in getting his life back together so it was all the more devastating when he passed away and so I just wanted to send a thank you to both of you and to, to Ingrid and to the rest of the folks out there who provided some level of support over the last week. But more importantly, I know that there's a lot of like entrepreneurs and extremely busy business folks who listen to this show. And one thing that I have really struggled with and grappled with after my brother's death is that, you know, for, for the last few months... I have been focusing on nothing but, you know, I have a new family and I've been focusing on nothing but my own business. And I missed a lot of opportunities to go see my brother. And, you know, I have to deal with that regret all the time, every day. And I'm not saying that because 
I want someone to make me feel better about it. It's just something that's going to hang with me for a long time. But I know that there's a ton of busy people out there who are probably in a similar situation with family members or friends or whatever. And you don't want to miss those opportunities to be there for someone, even if it's just a small thing when you're wrapped up in your own shit. And so it's just something that I'm grappling with and I thought that I would share. Um, And if it's a helpful reminder to someone, then I hope uh, it's beneficial to you. We love you, Stephen. We love you. Okay, well, with that, we're going to close out the show. Thank you all so much for the support for, for all of us and for the show. We really appreciate it. You can find all of us on Twitter and we like to hear you know your thoughts about what we're discussing here and it really does help uh, guide what we talk about in the future. If you have any other feedback, you can send it to postscriptaudio at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to Green Tech Media's newsletters to get daily stories about many of the topics that we cover on this show and gtm of course has a fantastic array of journalists who are covering this stuff in print format so be sure to go over to green tech media and subscribe to the different newsletters over there uh ingrid lobet is our senior editor jigger shaw and Catherine hamilton are my co-hosts and once again thank you all for listening we will catch you next week I'm Stephen Lacey. This is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy.